Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Hello and welcome to Fairy and Fantasy, episode 36. This episode continues the discussion of Garth Nix's Sabriel, chapters 6 through 11. Uh, on this beautiful, sunny spring day, I would like to talk about death a lot. Um, <laughs> it's a great perk to the, this choice of work at the end of the semester, right? We get to, let's, let's talk about uh, yeah, dead stuff. So I want to first talk about sort of the different categories of dead stuff that we need. Um, not just in order to kind of continue our, our examination into how things work here in this story, but also to begin looking at some of the larger uh, themes and picking up on some of the stuff we were discussing last time. Um, there are two basic categories, it seems, of dead stuff walking around. Um, the one that I want to start with is sort of the simpler kind, that is what could be called something like constructs, that is dead things animated and sent walking around <coughs> by a necromancer, that is like handmade dead stuff or uh, uh, compelled dead stuff. Um, what what examples do we see here? Can we can we make some categories? Yeah. Um, would a hand be? Yes. Yes. Hands uh, are the simplest version of this, right? And we have two kinds of two kinds of hands. What 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 are the two kinds of hands that we see? Yeah, Dorian. Hands and shadow hands. Yeah, hands hands which are essentially corporeal, and then shadow hands which are not. What's the difference? What is a hand exactly? Yeah. They're doing the bidding of somebody else. Okay, these are almost completely... Uh, certainly regular hands seem to be completely zombie-like, right? They just take the orders of the necromancer who is controlling them. We're told that the word hand is used derisively here, right? Uh, that is, they are, they are like the hand of the necromancer. They, just, they, they, they do what, it tells, what he tells them to do. Um, shadow hands are different. How are shadow hands different? They're much more complicated and difficult, we're told. But during well, they're the substance, and basically they are, are more malignant. It's the spirit as a bound that form, as a natural choice. Good. Yeah, yeah. The, the necromancer controls it, but it does have. It is a mind. It does have intelligence of its own. Right? Hands might have some kind of shadow of it, but not really. <coughs> a shadow hand can. Do its own thing. We, what do we see the shadow hand doing? We meet one shadow hand from a distance. What do we see it doing, and what can we conclude from that? I know I wasn't uh, quizzing you this rigorously about the other works that we did, but I want to make sure to keep... This is, uh, as you will have noticed, especially in, in the first part of this book, very detail-oriented. There's a lot of this stuff that we need to sort of sort out um, before we can really make sure we have a grasp on what's going on here, a lot of terminology that we need to make sure that we get. Um, I know that some people find that a little off-putting about this book, but, but hey, I'm a Tolkien scholar. I don't find uh, terminology and nomenclature off-putting, obviously. <coughs> Matt? Uh, we see the shadow hand taking kind of a leadership role in the, in the, the building of a major graveyard across the river. Yes. And we also see it reacting Yes, clear, clear autonomy and independent thought and cleverness, and it's put in charge of the other things. 
right? So it is still working as it's still called a hand. It is still working as a hand. It is still uh, under the guidance and direction, but it clearly does act autonomously um, and is and is certainly intelligent. But good. But both of those two things, both hands and shadow hands, um, are what? How do you make one? I mean, I, I, I hope you've done it. But I mean, like, what's the process like? How do we? What are we told about that, Dorian? Yeah, which she mentions when she finds the bodies of the the patrol, one of the missing patrols, and that they've all been decapitated. She can't. Well, what's the problem with that? Did you, did you follow what the problem was? Let me see if I can remember right, but it's something that she needs the head to be able to give the soul and body true death, like to make it so that no one can use them. And because the head was missing, now they can be manipulated. Yeah, there seems to be apparently a link between the body of a person and their dead spirit. So that if the body is still around, there can be, and we're told the head is particularly important, right? She could she could reanimate the bodies, the decapitated bodies, as hands. This is sort of an illustration of how mindless corporeal hands can be. They don't even need their heads, right? Heads optional. They can, they'll just stagger about and do what they're told to do. But she mentions that whoever took the heads could use those heads and make shadow hands from the spirits of those people. Both cases, we have the spirits of dead people who are being called presumably unwillingly, back from death and brought under the compulsion of the necromancer. So, in the, in, in, of course, in the case of the corporeal hands, their spirits are being forced back into a body. In the case of shadow hands, their spirits are being brought back on their own. That's why shadow hands are more difficult, because it appears to be easier to animate a body, and we'll come back to the animation of bodies later on. Um, yeah, yeah. That they only need the head to make, sh- to make shadow hands? Or just the body? I'm not sure that that's... I don't think it's like the only way to do it, but she was saying that, that it could be done. Oh. That whoever had taken the heads could bring the spirits back to shadow hands. Um, yeah, yeah. Matt? It's kind of like a Cartesian dualism thing. Like, to make a, to make a, a normal hand, you just need the body and the mind's optional. But to make a shadow hand, you really just need the mind and the rest of the body's optional. It's yeah, and a clear hierarchy between, right? Uh, uh, very un- unquestioningly uh, a mind over body uh, hierarchy being suggested. This is exactly why, apart from just sort of sorting out and make sure we're following things, it's exactly why I want to work through this. Because if we look at these different patterns, if we look at the different kinds of dead things, how they are composed and what they do and how they operate, we can begin to see some pretty important sort of basic framework which guides a lot of the rest of the story. Um, We can see this relationship between mind and body, which is really important. Both of them are involved. They're they're connected, and it it seems specifically the spirit most specifically attached to the head, right? which is why you can call back its spirit to make a shadow hand even if you only have the head available. Um, so yeah, no, that's that's clearly one of the things we can see. Jordan? Um, on the other front of necromancy, the Abbey style necromancy school, um, it's notable that when Samfield has the, uh, when she meets the first soldier, she is able to lay with the rest and 
Um, but she boots up the body, presumably sends the street down to the ninth gate, it sounds like. But she says she can't do that at all when the head is missing. It's not that, it's not, she could blame the body, so that wouldn't matter because this dude would still be wandering. Right, right, exactly. And he, th- th- that, that, not only the, the sort of the, the, the dual existence of people in mind and body, which is clearly emphasized here, or spirit and body. Um, spirit is the word used more often, though when we talk about spirits like shadow hands, um, intelligence seems to be one of the things that Nix keeps emphasizing um, about it. So the mind-spirit, uh, I'm much less clear on any distinction being made exactly between mind and spirit um, in this story. But, um, but anyway... Spirit and spirit and body, there is that there is that link between them, and not only it seems between one particular person's body and spirit, but you'll remember that one of the reasons they kept having problems at the border crossing. Remember the the, the enormous um, stupid error that the Encelstieran army headquarters made about the wall and the gates was that they kept they decided to stop originally. They used to move the border crossing along the border, and then they kept it in one place for a really long time, and this was disastrous in ways that Army HQ back in uh, Skeptical and Celestier couldn't understand. What was the problem with keeping the crossing in one place for so long? This became, over time, a huge problem. Do you remember the explanation that the colonel gives us to that? Yeah, okay. Dead started coming back to life. Like soldiers who died the week before were show. Yeah, yeah. There were so many, because there kept being fights and things kept dying, both soldiers on the Ancestiarian side and creatures trying to come across. Um, so there were so many dead things there that it, that it was drawing people, that, 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 that dead spirits kept coming back and more kept getting attracted to it. So there seems to be just this dead thing. Now, abortion fixes it. How does abortion fix this problem? When Wind flutes. What do the wind flutes do? Um, I think that when when the wind blows through them, there it triggers some sort of charter magic that um, banishes them. Pretty sure. Yes. Yes. <coughs> and there's a there's a binding involved. Um, binding and banishing is a really a, another interesting. We see a lot of binding going on, whether it be with the dead um, uh, through the use of which bell does bind. Oh, very good. <laughs> Just kidding. I told you I wouldn't quiz you on that. <laughs> I will, but it's okay. Uh, yes, Saranath is the binding bell. Um, so we will see. We will see that happen a lot. Of course, where else do we see Saranath? On Mogget's collar. On Mogget's collar, right? Mogget is under some kind of binding, um, which, of course, we are in the middle of finding more, uh, finding out more about uh, at the. Suspenseful place where I asked you to stop reading for today's <laughs> class. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Well, sorry about that. Anyhow, um, so the 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 wind flutes are also involved uh, in, in 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 binding. Binding and banishing are two things that the abortion seems involved in doing. Um, now. Uh, Give me another example. An- another example of a necromancer-generated sort of construct dead thing. <coughs> and I should, I should just mention, by the way, the other categories so that there's no confusion. I said there are two ma- seem to be two major categories of dead stuff you see going around. One is this one that I'm talking about, like constructs that necromancers make or bring 
uh, bring about. The other are the dead spirits which themselves escape from death. Um, the biggest example, of course, being Caragor, whom we met way back uh, in the prologue. Um, but of course, I, I want to come back and spend some time looking at Frock, uh, the dude that we meet at the very beginning uh, of the reading for today. Um, but those are different from these, because neither one of them were brought by a necromancer. These are spirits who worked on their way, on their own, from death. But anyway, more on them later. Back to constructs. Okay? I'm not sure if this is right, but the, the Mordicant? Yes, the Mordicant. Good. Good. Now, what's different about the Mordicant? How does a Mordicant differ from <coughs> a hand? Yeah, Dorian? Always oh, a person that's spitting fire. Yeah, and we can see it's, it's got a, this, this obvious superficial difference, right? You can always tell a Mordicant because it's on fire. Though it's not always on fire. When she first sees it, its footprints are on fire, which is interesting. And then as it gets really ticked off, it bursts into flame itself. Does it have wings? No, no wings at all, which is very clear and very important. Um, <laughs> no wings, no wings. Nor much shadow, actually, just the flame, thank you, yes. Isn't the difference that a necromancer has to make it in a specific way, but after that it's on its own and can't really be tamed? Because this thing's just going after her seemingly of its own free will. Maybe yes. it's on her by something, but... Yeah, certainly like a shadow hand, it does seem to be a free agent, right? That is to make its own decisions and to do its own thing. Um, it does seem a little bit more what, brutal than the shadow hand? I mean, the shadow hand you see sort of lurking in the background and being like, okay, you people move that over here. It, the Mordekin doesn't act like that. The Mordekin is not like, okay, I have a strategy, right? It's just like, <laughs> I reach my creepy claw through doors to get at you, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, um, I love the image of the Mordekin standing there with this silver portcullis in its hands by the, by the banks of the river, just like, Ugh. <laughs> I, am, I am ferocious and yet thwarted, right? And that's, and, and then the shadow hand is like, okay, okay, people, all right, let's, you know, form into teams and we'll chain you together. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's different, certainly, but it does, we are told, it is animated by an intelligence. So in that way, it is certainly more like a, more like a shadow hand. Uh, than, than like a regular hand or like a corporeal hand. I really want to have an adjective to call regular hands, but anyway, whatever. Yeah, best of I think it's also important to say that uh, it's, it's sort of similar to an abortion in the fact that it can travel freely through life and death. Yes. And like, that's, I guess, important to acknowledge because it's kind of the um, anti-version of people trying to attain order. And it's like built from like free magic, blood, and necromancy or something. It's like everything tagged with the world. Yes. And yeah, and and mud and bog clay. Yeah, yeah. Right, there you go. Um, uh, I think that's what helps uh, that's, that's that's why it's, it's like the fuel, that's why it burns, I don't know. But but yeah, we've got like mud, right, bog clay, uh, and and human blood and free magic. That's how you make a Mordekin. Oh, and then a dead spirit inside is its guiding force. Right, that's okay. So it has this intelligence. So it has, the, it has an intelligence like a, like a shadow hand, but it has a body, unlike a shadow hand, which has no corporeal presence, but it does have this manufactured body. 
dirt and blood and free magic. Um, and I agree, there's a kind of, there's a kind of, it seems, a parody of the charter and charter magic in Mordekins. Um, maybe that's too strong a word, but I, but I don't think so. Charter, charter symbols and charter magic seem always to be associated with life. That is, they always glow. Um, when, at least when they're in use. This is how, I mean, there's that, there's that lovely moment when Throck can't really see the charter, uh, the charter symbols on the sword because it's all covered in, in ice, right? And then she stabs it through the neck and the charter symbols are now glowing brightly, right? This is what always happens with charter symbols when they're used. Um, so the, the light and the flame of the Mordekant is like, is like the charter. You have this sort of union of things, but, but it's, free mag- it's free magic that's overseeing the union. It is... An abomination, but of course you'll notice it's also like a human parody abomination, right? Dirt and blood, clay and blood. It's like let's take, let's like undecompose a body, right? Slap in some new corpse blood, put a spirit in, and what we have is a, like the parody of a human being, right? With a fiery spirit. Uh, yeah, so this is much more than the hand. <coughs> you know, both kinds of hands are also a kind of twisting of a regular being. A reg- like, you know, hey, spirit plus body equals person, right? Sort of. Not so much with the hand, right? You either have the mind intact, comparatively, but no body, or you've got mind plus or you that body plus mind, sort of, not so much, right? Both of them almost human, but subhuman, um, and, and under the domination of the necromancer. The Mordekant, much closer, um, but also horribly, horribly twisted. And I love the business about the flaming footprints, right? That just, like, it leaves fire behind it. Um, I just find that very evocative. What else? Other constructs? Um, sendings? Yeah, yeah, and I want to come back to those in a second because that's really, that's a really fascinating contra- uh, uh, contrast, but at least one more necromantic construct. Jordan? Gore crows? Gore crows, yes. What do we see with the gore crows? Well, there are a bunch of birds that have been animated by a single unifying um, spirit, spirit from fragmented among them. And I, like, I love the pun, it's like, no, they're truly carrion birds. Yes, yes, yes. These are carrion birds that mean business, right? Um, none of this half-hearted carrion bird thing before, right? And that seems clearly why crows have been chosen. Um, uh, also because they look really ominous, you know, even more so when they're like all zombified and with their bones sticking out and everything. Remember, we're told that they fly just by force of free magic. They, they don't actually need aeronautics anymore, which is why almost none of them have any feathers left, but they're still flying around, because um, fortunately they're not using the feathers. Um, <coughs> okay, so we've got, we've got crows who are sacrificed. Right, so the crows are... are he, the, the necromancer gets together a flock of crows... Sacrifices them, cuts their throats, whatever he does. There seems to be throat cutting and bloodletting involved in sacrifices uh, in this book. Though we haven't seen any happen yet, but it, that seems to be suggested. So we sacrifice a whole mess of crows, and then what do we do? 
Again, not that I'm recommending this practice, but what happens next? I always feel like I should give like, don't try this at home disclaimers. Yeah? A single human spirit to put in the game force. Yeah, so we have a spirit and body thing again. Except this is clearly another category. Again, they're like hands, except <coughs> instead of the one spirit bound kind of mechanically to a body, we have this one spirit spread amid, amongst the entire flock of crows. And we're told that it's, it also seems to be operating somewhere in between uh, somewhere in between a regular hand, which is just acting out <coughs> the commands of whoever's commanding it, and the mordicant and the shadow hand, which have... It, it has intelligence, but barely have intelligence. The flock of gorecrows can act independently. They're not just... It's not like they're like a remote control flock of crows that someone is steering from the ground, which is like what a normal hand would be. Um, but plainly, not very... We're told it's not much of an intelligence that's guiding them. Um, so see, we had our... We, we had a mortality scale with the last unicorn, and now we're developing an unintelligence scale. Right? Regular hands on the one hand, shadow hands on the other. Gore crows, mordicants, shadow hands. Yeah, more or less works. And, but that itself is interesting, right? It shows us that what differentiates these constructs, the f- most fundamental thing that differentiates them, is level of intelligence, right? This is one way to, to look at them. All of them are this sort of warped and twisted parody of life, but... Um, but those variations in uh, in intelligence and what how the spirit is connected with them. But of course, you notice that the one thing that all of these things have in common with how the spirit is connected to them is that the spirit is connected to them forcibly. That is, it is by the necromancer dragged out of death and put into the gorkros or the hand or whatever. Mud and blood, or whatever it happens to be, that one is choosing to animate. Now, the direct contrast here, which I agree with Marta is a really fascinating one, is the the charter ghosts, right? The charter constructs. What did you notice about those, Marta? Um, <clears throat> well, we see them mostly in the Aforsen's house, so that kind of gives me the sense that he doesn't use hands and shadow hands and workings and things like that. He these sendings seem benevolent, if also if Mogget thinks they're a little bit kooky. But right, annoying, yes. But, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, this is coming from Mogget, right? This um, is more honesty with them than with the other yeah. constructs. Yeah, yeah, good. Come. Um, they reminded me a lot of all like the forks and knives and the dancing candelabras from the Beauty and the Beast. They're just sort of, uh, sort of these animated things that do their job and are, are seem not necessarily like having their arm twisted into doing it. They're just sort of anim- they have these compulsions that they go through and just kind of like an animated personification of laundry. Right, exactly. Bathing. 
personification. And that, I think, is the crucial thing. We have something which is almost like, like you said, it's like an automated house, right? We've got, like, the cooking machine and the laundry machine and the <coughs> bathing machine, apparently, and, you know, all of these other things, right? And the watchdog and the, everybody else, right? But, as you say, they're personified. They're not just... They're not just machines. They're not just automatic. They're not just like a dishwasher. They seem, at least the way Moggett talks about them, they seem to have personalities, and I think we can see some evidence of that. Yeah, Erin? I think what's also interesting is how limited they are, because with the shadow, with the hands and the shadow hands and all those, those are meant to go very far and to kind of spread a reign of terror almost. (laughs) But, you know, the guards have to stay at their guard post. The the sendings in the Corson's house, you know, she doesn't bring any with them, so you kind of get the sense that they're stuck there. So they're very limited. Yeah. No, exactly. I love when they all line up to watch her go, you know, and they're all, like, silently standing there like, bye. (laughs) Right? But there's very much, I mean, yeah, there's very much like a, you know, have fun storming the castle kind of. (laughs) They don't, they don't help. Um, they don't enlist, um, and they certainly. And this this does suggest a difference between them. That is not just a difference in their natures, but a difference in their function and being entirely between them and the hands. Right? They are not hands. They're like I, they are not the hands of the abhorsen to do his work. They just help. They just keep the house. Um, and they seem to have their own autonomy in doing this. She doesn't order dinner, right? She has no idea what to do. But as soon as she's there, wham, there we go. We get like the seven-course dinner she has with Moggett and, you know, in the bath. And they've got everything else up and ready to go, right? In fact, they don't really take orders because she tells them to stop. Right, right. they refuse <laughs> orders. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Though they don't refuse orders necessarily in the way that, like, you know, a washing machine would refuse orders. Um, I love the <laughs> when she the, the the line about how she's trying to apply some of her etiquette lessons. Like she's been taught how to how to speak to domestic servants, right? But it just doesn't work with these domestic servants. Um, <laughs> that is, she clearly is, uh, and I think we're being invited to put them in that category. That is not in the category of an automatic vacuum cleaner, but in the category of a household servant. Who and this is how Moggett talks about the one, for instance, you know, a privileged family retainer. Right, who's been there for a long time and therefore knows that like she's not going to get fired and, and you know can like pretty much be set in her ways and do what she wants to do and you know in her quiet and uh, well completely silent in her case, um, where <coughs> you know boss the masters around um, and ignore them. Yes, very much more, very much more of a personality. But of course, there's an important difference. And I have not completely left behind Kelly, but I'm coming back to the Beast parallel. This is an important difference from the teapots and whatnot in the Beast's castle and Beauty the Beast. What are they? People. They're people! <laughs> They're people whose forms have been changed, right? But they are fundamentally human. These aren't. And that's, I think, one of the things that's really fascinating when you, especially when you put them next to the dead things. The dead things are almost people. Spirit plus body equals person. There you go. These, they don't have bodies at all. They don't even have spirits exactly. They're just 
They're just made, they don't even have, they're just made of charter symbols. You look at them closely and all you see is this like, you know, matrix-like thing of, of charter symbols going around. <laughs> Seriously, that's the only metaphor I can think of, right, to describe that. They, they, don't, they don't even have bodies at all. They're completely inhuman. And yet, of course, a good deal more personable than any of the dead things that we meet. Not to mention more benevolent, but 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 as an even more personable. Yeah. So how did you say they're made again? They're like there are spirits involved, or <coughs> it doesn't seem like it. They're called charter ghosts. They're just made like the paperweight was made by spell. Just charter magic. It seems so. Okay. Yeah. Um, we don't get any sense here, nor do I think we ever get any sense that these charter constructs have any real human spirit at the root of them. It's not even like the spirits of old domestic servants who I decided that they wanted their spirits to live on forever serving the abortion. One could imagine such a situation, but that does not seem to be the case at all. They're just constructs. In the purest sense, in a much purer sense, then the dead constructs are constructs. There, at least, they're using raw materials, like human raw materials. Real human bodies, real human spirits, slap them together, and there we go. This is, from the ground up, magical. I think you're using the terms human and person to do changeably. I bet we prove person with the I apologize, Matt. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> that was deeply foolish of me. <laughs> Human is what I mean. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but you will notice, Mac, how careful I have been never to use the word, the adjective robotic, as I have been tempted to do on a couple of occasions, but forbore to do because you were in the room. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Mac wrote his thesis this year. I was his advisor on robots and personhood and uh, and whether or not. <coughs> Artificial intelligence deserves rights, so I've been very careful not to use the word robot disparagingly uh, in describing these constructs. So. <clears throat> anyway, even the paper wing, you'll notice, gets personified. Moggett talks about it, you know, like, when, do you remember when Sabriel says, hey, let's, let's fly all the way to the ocean, this is awesome, right? We'll be there in no time. What does he say? What does Moggett say? <coughs> something along the lines of, oh, the paper wing, it has to rest. Right. It, it doesn't like to fly at night. <laughs> it doesn't like to fly at night, yeah. It, they would really prefer not to. <laughs> right. um, I mean, and she certainly thinks, comes to think of it and speak of it uh, more, as a, more as a person, too. So, I, I think that this is, it's one really fascinating thing that we see, that when you get this construct built of charter magic, whether it has a physical, mechanical being like the paper wing, or not at all, like the charter ghosts, there is some kind of personality and personhood associated with them, it seems. Whereas even in things like shadow hands and mordicants, um, they are not people in the same way. They're certainly not viewed in that same way. Um, and I, I think that's it, it makes them... Uh, it makes them, I think, a really important um, 
a really important contrast. Like the scene when the servants all gather around before dinner to do homage to the new abortion, right? And they kneel in front of her and, you know, and she makes a little impromptu speech. Um, <coughs> that seems to be a very different kind of autonomy um, than we see any of the dead operating in. Back to, the, back to the greater dead, though. Back to the truly autonomous dead. Uh, let's start with Throck. Throck's entire role seems to be as a kind of case study. Throck and Throck's backstory give us an insight into how this process works. How do you go about, and again, don't try this at home, how do you go about becoming one of the greater dead? He had the force of will after he was killed to um, basically not um, allow himself to pass beyond the Knights Gate. And I think it's the fourth gate. He held on to it and wouldn't, wouldn't let go of and eventually um, learned how to navigate um, who he needed to, who he needed to um, obey and stay out of the way of um, in order to um, become, get enough power to pass back into life and to reanimate a body. Good. Yes, it's, it's the, the will to live. Right? What he is doing is within death, quite literally, swimming upstream. Right? He is swimming against the current of death um, by force of will. For centuries, we're told. Um, page 56, the beginning of chapter 6, is when we get the description of this. It had been human once, or human-like at least, in the years it had lived under the sun. That humanity had been lost in the centuries, the thing spent in the chill waters of death, ferociously holding its own against the current, demonstrating an incredible will to live again. A will it didn't know it possessed before a badly cast hunting spear bounced from a rock and clipped its throat, just enough for our last few minutes of frantic life. Now, one thing you notice there. What's important about, or what is interesting, rather, about the cause of death of this dude, person. We don't even know, male or female. We're told he can't remember whether he's male or female. He's in a masculine body, so he kind of thinks himself as masculine now. But it's, When it says, just enough for the last few minutes of frantic life, he, before he died, he was aware he was dying. It wasn't like something really sudden that, you know, he was kind of thrown into the waters of death and just carried along going, what's just happened? He was totally aware he was going to die, so he perhaps probably had a chance to prepare himself for plunging into death and like, no, I'm not going to let this happen. Good, good, yes. The, the attitude of this person when he crossed, I'm going to say he just for convenience purposes, when he crossed into death was was already resistant, right? He hadn't been before that time. It's not like he'd, his whole life been, you know, dedicated to trying to stay alive indefinitely. But in those last few minutes, he was sort of oriented in that way and has been oriented in that way ever since. What else? Well, the um, <coughs> incredibly improbable circumstances of death. <laughs> well, yeah, the, you know, deflected hunting spear. I mean, you know, it happens sort of standard hunting accident. Uh, I mean, in Foundations, we're, we're, we're going to discuss Hyacinthus and the improbable discus accident that resulted in his death. So to me, this seems perfectly uh, normal. But um, 
but yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's weird. But I think <coughs> to me, the interesting thing about it is the fact that it's an accident. Can we? The thing that struck me, sort of, the fact it was a hunting accident was the fact it was a bladed weapon. It's not like he got knocked over by an animal, and that sort of sounds a lot like an accidental sacrifice. Yeah, you're right. I mean, he did get his throat cut by a blade. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but that is... And then lived for a couple minutes, we're told. So, bled comparatively slowly. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's an interesting point. There is something (laughs) quasi-sacrificial. An accidental sacrifice, right? Um, Yes. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Matt? Uh, two things. Down under the cancer, you could also fall by the rock, kind of major to all the cracks of Bella. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, I, another interesting thing about this is that it's the only thing he seems to remember about being alive. He's like, we get, he remembers that he was human or human life, and he remembers the exact circumstances of his death. Right. That's, like, that's all he has. Yep, yep, yep. This doesn't remember even enough of life to remember like what, what his name, sex, anything. Species. Yeah, exactly. Species, all these small things, um, less important. Yeah, I agree. So we can see that complete fixation, which certainly seems to be a major symptom of the greater dead. This this um, completely obsessive focus on life and getting back to life. That will that makes him swim against the current of death for centuries. Another thing that I find interesting about this is that his death was an act like, it's not like he was killed. Um, one might sort of suspect, <coughs> like, oh, it, you know, someone who was murdered untimely, right? Like, you know, it did, like Banquo's ghost or something. You know, like, that's, that's the kind of thing that would lead to, you know, someone's spirit who was like, ah, I was ripped away from the earth before my time, and there's a horrible murder that must be avenged and at least, you know, exposed, or I have unfinished business. Do not remember any unfinished business? Uh, it seems to me that he's more closely like, just he thinks it was unfair. And like that's why he got around the gate. Like he had the few minutes where he was waiting out and he decided that it wasn't fair for him to die this place. He decided he wasn't going to die for Yeah, it just it just just it's it, he's not coming. Right? Um, and we I, we don't see any real reason I think to to to, to think that he is I, but he doesn't seem to think of it in sort of cosmic terms. Like it is it is unjust that I should die, and I'm going to write this injustice. He's just like, me, life, right? Even the who the me is becomes unclear. Um, and the only thing he's thinking about is the life. Um, and you'll notice, of course, like, how is life like, or what do we call it? How is existence like down there in death? You know, what do you, what's, what goes on in death? Amongst the other spirits, what are his relations with other spirits down there? He preys on the lesser ones and serves or avoided the greater ones. Yes, he preys on the lesser ones and avoids or serves the greater ones. So we have a hierarchy, but in both cases it is a completely self-focused hierarchy that seems of a piece with his complete sort of self-absorption, right? On nothing, even. A self-absorption which even comes to ignore himself 
<laughs> in a sense that all he's thinking about is existence itself, is life itself. And so he disregards other things. That is not that he doesn't notice them, he, 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 but he doesn't think about them. Right? He prays upon them to strengthen himself. He avoids being prey to others. Well, the first book says by sheer effort of liver held itself on the left side. It seems like he has to like focus on that constantly. If he ever stops, he drifts away. So he had, so it seems like all he does is focus on not dying and eat other things. And yeah. that's his life. Yep, yep, that's it. That's it. Um, think about think about that current. Dead things. There are two things. <coughs> Two things that restrict dead things in the living world. What are the two things dead things can't? Flowing water. Running water and the sun. Yeah, the noonday sun, direct sun. The stronger ones can even be out, you know, in the morning or evening. But the, the noonday sun makes even the greater dead go away. So they know there's going to be a work break, right, uh, around noon. Um, in the uh, our impromptu bridge building, and how do we build the bridge over over the portions or um, with grave dirt? With grave dirt, yeah, yeah. Now, now think about this. What's interesting here? I think this is this is one of the things that I find really fascinating about this particular construction of Nixus because the running water thing is traditional. Um, running water is often uh, in, in, you know, in several different traditions, there's something significant about running water. We see running water. Uh, we see, you know, a, a, a Dracula in Bram Stoker's novel has a similar problem with running water. We can only cross it um, at exactly the turn of the tide, um, one one turning of the tide or the other. Um, so we see, and, and it would be destroyed if you were immersed in in running water or in the sea. Um, so that's, I mean, we see that tradition out there. Um, we see water often uh, at the borders of, of, of kingdoms, even of fairy-like kingdoms. So, you know, that's... <coughs> but, but Garth Nix takes that and does something I think really interesting with it. What, within the story, think not about other traditions that, you've, that you might have read or heard about, but within the story, what seems obviously interesting or relevant about the running water? With what should we be connecting? The rivers of death. There are two places we see running water, right? In the real world, where dead things can't cross them, and in death. And the things that can't cross them in life are the things that are fighting against the current in death. So there is this antipathy which mirrors... These two antipathies, or these two uh, sort of opponents of it, which mirror each other. Which I think... And then, how do you counteract it in the real world? Great dirt. Right? That's... Let's undo this... This water with... with dead, with like the binding of the dead... It's really cool, man. I feel like that's mostly your borrowing from Dracula. That's how Dracula is supposed to be. In coffin and grave dirt. In coffin and grave dirt, yeah. Yes. But again, I think he's doing something more than just 
Well, I mean, yeah, he is borrowing. But I think he's borrowing really interesting. And the, and the function that he's putting it to, of course, what is it? Grade? What's the point of grades? Theoretically? Very theoretically around here, it seems. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Resting place for the dead is that's exactly the phrase that I was thinking of for the great return, right? But even there, as you say, there's this kind of twisting effect, right? Um, yes, this is where dead things belong, so we're we can, we're okay here. Um, but you know, it is for them also like this path through which they can oppose, they can continue their opposition. What happens if the grave dirt goes away? What happens when the flood comes down? Well, they'll, they'll, they'll be destroyed, which means what? In their terms, in their world. We'll be taken back to death. And presumably, straight back down the current. Right? Certainly the hands will. Um, yeah, yeah, suddenly the one current leads them directly into the other current. Now, when Thralk escapes... He escapes when some massively powerful dead creature bursts up from the lower portions of the dead and then meets a powerful enemy. Any theories? A person. And? Probably. Uh, Maybe. Actually, that person in the pull says, I am chained you beyond the seventh gate, and this might still interrupt it beyond the seventh gate. Yeah, yeah. It's going to seem more than probable now. <laughs> So in the prologue, somewhere off to the side, we have Throck, the Throck spirit, sneaking, and he sneaks out behind a horseman when a horseman is there confronting <clears throat> confronting Caragor. We know that when any necromancer, a horseman or not, crosses into death, they open a gateway, they break the binding. This is why, remember, Magat claws into Sabriel when she almost goes into death in the house. And she's, he says, look, you're the only one who can break that seal. Um, there, are, there are wards <coughs> that protect this house from anything crossing over to death into it, which, as one can imagine, lots of things would like to do. But she can cross into death if she wants. She has the authority to break that seal. But if she does, she opens the door and other things can come in. So don't be an idiot and don't go into death, Maga tells her. Right? Um, so there's a horseman with the door standing open behind him in the prologue when he's confronting Caragor, who's holding infant Sabri, right? Or the spirit of infant Sabri. Um, and, and there's Throg sneaking out the door. What does it do as soon as it gets there? What does it do? First thing it does. It jumps into a, um, a recently vacated body and um, runs away. Yeah, it, 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 it animates a body. So we see that even these powerful spirits, even these independent spirits, not summoned forth by a necromancer, but who come forth or sneak out under their own power, still 
want bodies? Still need bodies? Not absolutely need. When, when Sabriel stabbed its body through the throat, what does it do? What, is, what does Throck do, the spirit of Throck? They try and pull the spirit out of the body. They try to so leave the body. Okay, I'll, I'll leave you know this already decaying corpse uh, with her, and I'll take off and try to run away and get away. So what does she do? Her first, her, she she has this like three step process by which she banishes banishes and destroys the spirit of Throck. Her first is to stab it through the neck. Again. Again. <laughs> yes. Oh, the irony. <laughs> Oh, that really stings. Stabs it through the neck. She paralyzes it with Saranath. Yes, Saranath. She, she binds it. She uses the binding bell, Saranath. So she binds the spirit to the body so it can't escape. And then forces it to walk back to death using Kibbeth. Kibbeth, yes. Kibbeth is the walker. She then rings Kibbeth, and Kibbeth makes it go, makes it walk. Its spirit, its spirit walks into death, and it's going to is not going to be, under the power of Kibbeth, will not be able to swim against the current. And so Dana will go to the ninth gate and see you later, Throck. So this is, this is, this is, this is, this is so she binds the body and the spirit together and while it's trying to leave. So it's not essentially tied to a body. It's not like all you have to do is separate, you know, like destroy its body and then it'll be gone. But yet it's interesting that even this autonomous spirit needs or wants a body. Um... True death had come for him at last, it recognizes. Um, at the beginning of class next time, I want to be thinking about Throck and what we learn about Throck and the spirits of the dead and how this helps us to understand Sabriel and her thoughts and plans about her father, um, especially thinking about Moggett's comments on that regard. Thank you very much. See you on Wednesday. That's it for this episode. Next time the class will discuss chapters 12 through 17 of Sabriel. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.